Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning we will return to Romans chapter 1, and we will begin again our reading in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 17. Uh, I probably could tell you that we'll finish up today, but I could probably tell you lots of things. Not sure, but I'm not in a hurry, and I've asked God to help me to not get in a hurry. So, I want us to take a a, a look at just, I mean, think about it. Now, I was out one week, but I think this would be our fourth week on two verses. And, and, and it's not like we're just trying to repeat things. As we go back, and you'll notice today as we review a little bit from the beginning and then move on with our outline, we will review, but we will review with different points, different ideas, because we are building upon the truth that we have here in these two verses. It is... As we've said already, the theme of the entire book of Romans, and that's a mouthful. If you can put a theme together in two verses for the book of Romans, then you must have been inspired by God to do so, and that's exactly what we have here. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. We started this whole series identifying the two most important ideas in the world. The two most important things that you and I can deal with and attempt to know and to be a part of as a human being. The two most important things is, number one, that God be demonstrated for who He is. We call that glorifying Him. It's when we rub away all the tarnish and all of the yuck from a fine piece of furniture or a, a piece of jewelry and we let the real thing shine through. No need to add anything to God. Let Him shine through. That's a great illustration of glorification. And then the second thing is not only that we understand and demonstrate and preach who God is, but that we also understand what it means to have a relationship with Him. Because one of the things we discovered in, in understanding who He is, that He is holy and we are not. And we need a relationship with Him that is an awful large gap, that is a God-sized gap that has to be Field if we were to have any kind of relationship with him whatsoever. So let's review a tad about these two things. A.W. Tozer, he was a preacher that died when I was three years old. I'm amazed by all the awesome things that he's written and said in his life, but uh, he's always just called a pastor, uh, usually. Uh, and I like that about him, but I can tell you, if you read his book, I'll quote from the knowledge of the holy, you'll realize quickly that he is just not a typical pastor. This man, uh, he communed with God. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we talk about God is the most important thing about us. When you hear the word God, what comes to your mind is the most important 
nothing about you. Uh, he goes on in that same passage from that book. And he says, to the church, Tozer says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him, or leaves unsaid, for silence is often more eloquent than her speech. But get this, she can never escape, the church can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. What a church says about God determines so much about that church. It's the most important thing about it. I, I, and, and I'm, I don't, you know, don't run ask me this week just because I'm telling you now that in 42 years I don't think I've ever been asked that by anybody. I've been asked questions like, what do y'all have for youth? What do you have for kids? And, and what's Bible school look like? And can I get a ride? I've been asked tons of things about church, some more important than that. And I shouldn't just say they were all like that. No, they weren't. But I've never had anybody ask me, what does this body of believers say about God? Who is God here? How do you preach God? How do you approach God? How do you see God around here? Is He the man upstairs? Is He my big buddy? Or is He the almighty creator of the universe that we would not even know had He not revealed Himself to us? Is, is that who God is? is? Is He the one who can be merciful to whomever He likes and be justified in all His ways? Is, is that who God is? Is and I could just go on and on. But who is God? Uh, there's a lot of people who have ideas. Some of them are endearing, like the man upstairs. That's kind of my God, and me and God, we got our own thing going, or whatever. And you know, He's the big guy, and and all of that. I, I uh, can't remember the name now, the German theologian that said that we have so uh, deified humans and so humanized God that we can hardly tell the difference anymore. There's, there's a view nowadays, it seems, in the post-modern world, the post-truth world, the everybody-feel-good-about-yourself world, it's almost like this, and I, I just tried to put into words what I was seeing in my mind, but it's like one day when we get to heaven, and, or, or one day when we're all going to gather around a throne, instead of bowing down, God's going to stand up. He's going to leave the throne, toss the crown to the side. He's going to come down from that throne, join arm in arm with a large group of people that just grows larger the further it goes through the city. And all kinds of faith uh, uh, are going to be represented there. The Hindus wait till they get there in their beautiful clothing. And, and the Muslims and the Jews, won't it be awesome when they all come together? And, and even the atheists, they'll be the most shocked ones in the crowd. But Boy, can you just imagine the big group hug that when the theists and the atheists all come together. And, and I even got some background music from Andrew Lord Weber. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar has to be playing in the background. I could have said that in a lot of churches. And had I not precursored it with this is not how it is. Some would have said amen for the first time in their life. Because that's exactly how they see God. That's how they see it all unfolding. And if it weren't for men like me, boy, and I, I, I don't belong in this crowd, but A.W. Tozer and the Sproles and the Pipers and so many other men of God and that list of pastors that I know personally that I prayed for this morning and the other pastors on the staff of this church that I prayed for you and your wives and your children this morning. If it wasn't for 
men of God and women of God willing to stand and speak the truth in pulpits and in the marketplace and wherever. I, I can just tell you, uh, man, if they see us as a hindrance, if it wasn't for us, everybody could have already embraced this wonderful notion about God. The Bible could have been just as short as God loves everybody. End a story. Man, wouldn't it be great? Read through that in a year. You know, we're so lazy, we'd have Bibles that said, read through this whole verse in a week. Could have ended. Why did God say so much else? And God does love us, but how does that bring about our salvation? That's what is not talked about. But we have here in the last few weeks. Other people say, I, I don't like God because they don't have an endearing image of Him. They bring up attributes of God that they just don't feel like are good. They talk about, well, it says in the Bible God is a jealous God. No, you're wrong about that. It says in the Bible that He is not only jealous, but that one of His names, Elkanah, means jealous. So if you're going to criticize God, get your Hebrew right, okay? Don't be slinging words around you don't know. Yeah, it says his name, Elkanah, is jealous. We can translate it zealous, but just as easily translate it from the Hebrew as jealous. And they say, well, that's a terrible attribute. He shouldn't be jealous. I think it's one of the most beautiful attributes of God, that he is jealous. I, I think about myself. Do you know who I am? I, I am, I, am uh, uh, I, I, I know you call me Pastor Mike. I'm glad that we have two other Pastor Mikes here. That way I just keep going when I hear that. And I assume it must not be me. When somebody says, Pastor Mike told me, I love it. I can go, well, he's right across the hall. And if it's really, really bad, I say he lives in Mill Springs. But do you know who I really am? I'm Papa. That's who I am. I'm Papa. He's a little blonde-headed boy right back there calls me Papa. He's got him a cell phone now, and he'll send me a text telling me, I love you, Papa. Do you, do you know I don't want him calling anybody else Papa? If he told me, he says, Papa, there's a... Another old man out in the parking lot want me to call him Papa. I'm not going to go, well, that'll be fine. I mean, I'm going to go now to tell him to breathe there in the morning at 5, bring his walker, because we're going to throw down, buddy. Two old, crippled, bald-headed, fat men. Until one of us dies with a heart attack, there won't be but one Papa leave that parking lot in an ambulance, most likely. And if he's planning on shooting me, he'll be the second one. Tell him that. I don't want him to have anybody but me as his papa. And God doesn't want me having anybody but him as my heavenly father. I think that's pretty doggone awesome. He's jealous. When I cry out in the middle of the night, big grown man like me shouldn't be afraid of anything. But when I cry out in the middle of the night because I'm overwhelmed with my fears or the OCD that has plagued me for my entire life or the worries or the fears sometime overwhelm me. And when I was walking through that battle with cancer and sitting in a tree stand bleeding to death two years ago, I can tell you something. He wanted me calling on him. He wanted to know that that boy needs me. He needs me worse than he thinks. He needed me before he got up there with a bullet in the chamber. That's when he needed me. But he didn't have enough sense to call on me then. But I want him to need me. I want him to run to me. And, and man, I think that is an awesome attribute of God. It, it really isn't, though, about his attributes. We get in these arguments with people and apologetics uh, which is a field that I just am absolutely enamored with, studying about our faith and giving a defense for our faith. 
It's really, though, when people begin to say, well, I've heard this about God, or, or I've heard that about God. Frank, Frank Turek, uh, he is one of my favorite uh, apologists, and he has some great stuff online. You can look him up. And uh, Loretta and I got to meet him out in uh, 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 Colorado Springs years ago and got to hear him there and talk with him. Just an awesome guy, brilliant man, brilliant man. <laughs> But he was talking the other day in an interview, I was watching him, and uh, the young man who was interviewing him was part of another Christian organization, and he asked him, he said, uh, when you look at people and you tell them, because he does this quite often, he says, when you look at people and they don't accept Christ, he says, Dr. Turek, what is the number one roadblock you see in the present generation from accepting Christ? And immediately, and shockingly and surprisingly, the first word out of his mouth, and only word, was sex. And the guy interviewed him and said, what? He said, sex. He said, it kind of all boils down to that. He says, when I get in arguments with people and they tell me, well, you've not really presented a good enough case, and he does it to, on college campuses all over the world. He has done battle live, uh, national televised battles uh, with the greatest, greatest atheistic minds in the world. But he says it all boils down to one thing. He said, it's not about evidence he said, people will say, you've not convinced me. He said, I will look at them most of the time and say, if it were true, let's say it's not, but let's say what the Bible says about Christ, if it were true, would you believe it? And he says, 90% of the time or more, as I don't remember, he said almost all the time, he said, they say no. He said, the elephant in the room is not a lack of evidence. He said, the elephant in the room is I want to do what I want to do. And he says, the catch-all phrase nowadays is sex. I want to live like I want to, with whomever I want to, and however I want to. He says, that is one of the greatest expressions of our autonomy and our self-will and the exaltation we have made of, of the self, and you will not tell me what to do. He said, I can tell you the biggest reason that people walk away from it is not a lack of evidence. He said, I deal with these intellectuals on these Christian campuses all the time, and they challenge me on this, that, and the other. And boy, it's great to, to, to watch him. He's so kind, so sweet, so respectful. But he's so brilliant and so biblically founded. But I, I, I can just tell you, I loved his answer there. He said, people aren't looking for evidence. I remember old Dr. Vance Havner said one time years ago, he says, most people can't find God for the same reason a bank robber can't find a cop. He said, they're not looking for one. That's the elephant in the room. So if you think, yeah, I'm going to get me a good book on apologetics and I think it'll help me lead my team to Christ, I wish you well with that. But I doubt it'll work. It's not evidence that people are looking for. Who is God so important? And then how do we have a relationship with Him? And then that brings us Back to our outline today. Our second question. How do we have a relationship with Him? We talk about salvation. How does that work? And Paul says, well, this is how it works. And he gives us these two verses. And he starts out, he says, first of all, if you're going to understand the Gospel, and this is the how, this is the how we have a relationship with God. This is how sinners are redeemed and brought back into a right relationship and declared righteous before God. He says, you, you have to understand the gospel. He said, told us, first of all, there's a stigma about the gospel. In verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's about to go to the 
the, all the big-time intellectuals, the people who feel sorry for people like the Apostle Paul, who think, man, he had such a good education. He was taught as a Jew under Gamaliel, I, I, I believe. And, and, of course, we know that, but I'm, that's how they would say it. Uh, yeah, he was. He had a brilliant mind, and they're thinking, and then he fell for this crazy idea about God killing his son so we can all have a relationship with him. What is he? That sounds more like a Canaanite deity killing his own children uh, for something like that. And they rejected Paul. And Paul said, that's the point where they always reject me. He said, it is the cross because he said to the intellectual Greeks, it's foolishness. And to the Jews, it's always been a stumbling block. He said, it all goes well till I bring up the cross. And Jews hit the floor, and Greeks hit the door. That just came to me. <laughs> Write that down, honey. I may use that somewhere else. There's a stigma about the gospel. He'd been through a lot of troubles with that. There's a strength about the gospel. We talked about that. It is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation. Dunamis was the word. We got our word dynamite from it. It is the power of God's salvation. That's, it, it is the power to change our lives. And dunamis being different than the Greek word exousia. Exousia means authority. To those who believed, he gave them the authority, the exousia, to become the sons of God in First John chapter or in John chapter one. But but then there is another word we translate power, dunamis. And that's the word for dynamite. We get a word dynamite from it. And it means that you move what doesn't want to move. What doesn't want to go anywhere. That thing that will not turn you loose. It may be time for some dynamite. Boy, that can move the unmovable. We talked about that last week. I want to say one thing before we move on. It is the power unto God for salvation. For those who believe, and we talked about that word. The word means for those who are believing. It is a participle. Don't just get saved and leave it at the door. Participles are ing words. So to those who are believing, you believed when you got saved on Sunday. Believe on Monday too, and believe on Tuesday as well, and believe on Thursday, and keep throwing yourself at the throne of grace and at the feet of God, and keep coming to Him, repentant and broken. That's how you succeed at the Christian life. A lot of us are way better at getting saved than we are at being saved. Because it's almost like we feel like God saved us and then shoved us out into the world and said, all right, now don't come back and bother me anymore. I'm giving you a fresh start. Behave. That is so not how it works. So not how it works. I told you, I think I grew up in a church where we got saved a lot. Uh, <laughs> Even though we believed and preached, once saved, always saved. And of course, that is true. That's biblical. No doubt about that. But, but there were so many people who would come forward in the church I grew up in and say, I, I just don't feel like I understood. I don't, I, I, maybe I didn't get, maybe I was young, whatever. I just don't feel saved. I, I want to make sure, preacher, that I'm saved. Boy, I'm so guilty of that. But I think what we were all longing for when we did that, a lot of times, not always, but one of the things I think we were longing for was that grace and mercy that we felt the day we believed. And since then, we felt like we've been on our own fighting a devil that beats us ten ways a Sunday. God, if I could just go back. Can I go back and start over? We had this thing called... Uh, Rededication. Remember, I'll tell you about that. That, that. That's where you don't quite need saving. But if your husband don't soon shut up, you're going to need the full thing again. You know? <laughs> I think that sweetness we felt when we said, I surrender all. Sing it on Sunday. But sing it on Monday. 
and sing it on Tuesday and keep singing it and keep saying, just as I am, God, without one plea, because the one who saves you is the one who keeps you saved. Man. Talk about the stigma of it and the strength. Secondly, let's talk about the scope of it. He says in verse 16, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Now remember, that's a present perfect participle, so he is actually saying to everyone who is believing. To everyone believing, it is the power of of God unto salvation. Now, don't get this wrong. My belief in God, is, is that's not what brings it. That's not the power behind it. When I come to God and I say, God, I'm, I'm finally ready to believe. That's not like I'm going to work out a deal with God. I, I brought my belief, God. I, you, you won me over. Here's my faith. I'm going to trust in you and and, of course, then God's got to stand up and do His part, and that's where He saves you. No, I'm going to tell you, you don't even come to God unless God draws you to Him. You don't come to God unless God draws you to Him. Your belief is not the source. Would you think you, you got saved over in the middle of the morning so God had to hop out of bed? Light a lamp and get on his feet and get busy. You were ready to get saved? I think we think like that sometimes. You can't be saved unless God draws you to him. No man can come unto me, Jesus said, unless the Father which sent me draws him. So don't think you brought something and God brought something and you worked out a deal. We brought nothing. God brought Everything. Well, those who are believing, and it means it continues on. It, th this is going to help us. There's some verses we read sometime in the New Testament, and, and, and we dance a little when we interpret them because they don't, they, they, they're a little bit spooky. Uh, let me read you one of them. Um, in Matthew 24, verse 9 says, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, Jesus said, Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. But lawlessness is increased. Not hard to imagine that. Most people's love will grow cold. And then verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, that sounds an awful lot like work salvation, does it not? It sounds an awful lot like, well, if I don't keep it up and I don't stay in there, uh, then I lose my salvation. No, you won't lose your salvation. The one who endures to the end, though, won't endure to the end, though, because of your determination and because of your great church attendance and because you work so hard to be the best Christian you could be. The one who saves you is the one that endures you to the end. Did you get that? It's not us. It's the one, those who are believing, those who wake up on Monday believing. They believed on Sunday they were saved. They believed on Monday and I keep them saved and I protect them. And, and so it's, it's almost like we're saying, well, you, you, you mean there's, there's more? Well, actually there is. And, and, and let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Actually, he says much more. <laughs> He says, much more than, in verse 9, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved. That's a future. That's, a, that's we shall be saved. We are saved. You mean we are saved, and, and we're being saved, and we shall be saved? You got it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
through the death of his son. That's, a, that's an aorist participle. It means an action. Having been justified. It happened. It's punctiliar. An action. It was done. That's a done deal. And it's never going to be undone. Hallelujah. So what about this enduring to the end? He's in charge of that too. I mean, just think about it. What if God says, I will really super save you? Like super soakers, I got a super saver. And I think old Wally's probably going to need that one. So I'm going to hit him full steam. Because when I'm done, Wally's going to be on his own. Hope to see you in heaven, Wally. Good luck with that. Signing off from heaven. You know who all would be in heaven? None of us. None of us. None of us. The other verses, uh, I won't give you a ton, but they're all over the New Testament. Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. People today who think that preachers like myself and Christians like you that are hated and cause controversy must be something wrong with us. Jesus said, well, no, if you preach what I tell you, they're going to hate you. won't be a misunderstanding. No, they're going to hate you. <laughs> he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I have to endure to the end, friend. The good news is the same power that saved me is the same power that endures me. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure... We will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. He will deny us. You mean there's some people who at one time thought they were saved and later grew to realize this is not for me. That wasn't what I was really looking for. That's what I thought I wanted, but what I really wanted was, see, I got kids, they don't go to church, and they're really millennials, and they kind of got a new age kind of thinking, and, and I want to have a good relationship with them, so this business of salvation, and this business that Preacher Mike keeps talking about on these sermons on how to be saved, that's, that's not really what I was looking for. There are tons of people that have done that, friend. As a matter of fact, I'll give you one last verse. 1 John 2, 19. Now he is talking about false teachers, those who are considered anti-Christ. He says, he says it had to happen. It had to be made clear. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they are not of us. So yes, you have to be saved, and yes, you have to endure to the end. And then yes, one day when God turns all hell loose on this earth and His wrath is known like we can't imagine and wickedness is cast in the abyss forever and ever, then from that we shall be saved. And we cannot do any of the three. It's all. A work of God. The significance. Do I still have my mic on? Okay, I do. I'm losing stuff up here. The significance of salvation. I wanted to at least get here today. The significance of the salvation that he talks about. He says it's so significant for in it, verse 17. We're finally there. Only took us a month. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, the righteousness of God. This is a God kind of righteousness. And if I only say this, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not trying to impress anybody, but I don't want you to think, well, I'm not sure if I agree with that or did he just make that up. This is what we would call a subjective genitive. You want me to keep going? Or will you just take my word for it? 
that this is a God kind of righteousness, okay? It's a God kind of righteousness. And you say, well, righteousness, is there any other kind? Well, I don't know. I can sell you a Rolex for 50 bucks. Want one? Just because I knew I was going to do this sermon illustration, I got called, actually. Cooper walked in my office, and I was looking at Rolexes. I was looking for a little symbol to put in my notes so I'd remember to say this. I'm not looking to buy. Not right now. I'm not even kicking the tires. Forty-something thousand dollars for a watch. My goodness. How badly do you need to know what time it is? Phew. And I know there's some cheaper. But if I offer you one for 50 bucks, hmm, you might want to put on a welding glove before you pick it up. She may be a tad warm, or like most of those $50 Rolexes, they're cheap, cheap knockoffs. And they got good at it too, buddy. Oh, yeah, those boys at that... Uh, Las Vegas pawn shop, uh, gold and silver pawn or whatever it's called. They got them. They bought about seven or eight of those bad boys one time. And if they can get them, they can get you, friend. They're cheap knockoff pieces of junk and they're worthless. And I will tell you when it comes to righteousness, it's just like Rolexes. There's some cheap versions of that as well. And I, wanna, I want to... I want to note a book that started this whole sermon series for me. Going through it now, fourth or fifth time at least. But the Gospel-Centered Life by Robert Thune and Will Walker. They're the one that going through it once again for me. And I will probably go through that little book periodically until God calls me home. Because that's what that book is about. It's not about just getting saved. It's about living a life that is gospel-centered. Depending on the gospel to help you have a good Wednesday. To keep you saved. To help you endure to the end. That's what that whole study is about. It's so awesome. In the gospel-centered life, they talk about righteousness. They're in the handout. We'll put them on the screen. There are a lot of different kinds of righteousness. Maybe you've not heard of some of these most of us have job righteousness and when i say righteousness just think about something that makes you kind of feel good about who you are you know what i mean yeah i feel good about who i am <laughs> i'm not a good good at swagger especially with one broken arm Job righteousness is that I work hard so God will reward me. I'm not one of these lazy scumbags that's just sucking off the government all the time. I work hard. I'm a hardworking man. I can tell you I've talked to people about their salvation and the second thing came out of their mouth, especially with us men. I'm a hardworking man. Well, let me put that down because Jesus asked about that on page 3 on your form to save you. Hardworking man. But that makes people feel good about themselves. Not that I'm a born-again child of God, that I was a worthless sinner, no account, absolutely deserved hell, and should be there right now. But God Almighty saved me and gave me His righteousness as a gift of grace. If that's what makes you feel good about yourself, you got the Rolex. Family righteousness. A lot of people get that because I do things right as a parent. <laughs> I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Don't ever make that statement until your kids die from old age. I see people running around with kids like this and they're like, some people just can't control their kids. I'm thinking, you wait till Sissy Breaches gets to be about 17. You might learn some things. I can tell you. Family righteousness. There's people that feel good about themselves. 
Theological righteousness, this is a famous one. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Amen? I know the Word of God. I study the Word of God. I watch Brother Whizbang's podcast. I, I, I know what the Word of God has to say. That's what's making you feel good about yourself and right with God. If it's giving you any sense at all, I didn't say that that's what you depend on completely, but if it's helping, you, you feel saved, but it does feel good to know your theology is up to zip when most people zip it. If that's where you are, friend, you've got some theological righteousness you need to get rid of. Intellectual righteousness, I'm, a better, I'm better read, more articulate, more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Schedule righteousness. Now, these people do get on my nerves. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. There's a lot of people, if you're going to show up late, don't show up, whatever. That is such a, and I'm going to just take a second here. It is such a cultural thing. If you're going to be a missionary in other cultures, one of the first things George and them is going to teach you at CIT, am I right, George, is that everybody won't show up to church on time. And if you want to shoot yourself right in the foot, I'd be an expert on some of that. But if you want to put an end to your ministry quickly, complain about it. I learned a long time ago, it's not when they come in India it's who comes. And they can come in late. As a matter of fact, most of them wear watches. I haven't a clue as to why. <laughs> Not a clue. When people ask me sometimes, now when it's such and such time here, what time is it in Chennai? I go, it doesn't matter. It does not make any difference. It's a cultural thing, but some people feel, oh, I got schedule righteousness, flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I am flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everybody else should. Well, we should care about the poor and the disadvantaged. But you know, one of the most ironic things about our thinking when it comes to the New Testament is we always talk about Jesus cared about the poor and the downtrodden, and he did, and, and those who had physical needs unlike the Pharisees. You just showed me that you don't understand Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had three fundamental foundations to the Jewish faith. One was prayer, the other was the Torah, and the third one was alms. And that is giving to the poor. And Jesus looked at those folks right in the eye and says, you have left the weightier matters undone. Well, they took care of the poor. They believed it was an obligation from God and they believed it helped to win them their salvation. That's why they had very little time for Jesus' teaching about grace and forgiveness and dying on the cross, they were earning it by caring about the poor. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink. Now, these are their words. But I've used them. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. They actually said that in the book. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Too many Christians, it says, just aren't concerned about holiness these days. You feel good about yourself? That make you feel a little more up just to know that, hey, I go to church with some folks. I'm telling you, I don't know how they justify blah, 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 whatever. And you just feel good about yourself. You've never done that in your whole entire life. And you couldn't imagine doing such a thing. Whatever it is. I'm telling you, living righteously before God through His power, that's an awesome thing. But if you are feeling like you are more accepted by God because of some self-righteousness going on, 
within you, I would recommend you take a trip through the gospel-centered life. Financial righteousness. Political righteousness. Almost didn't have time for this one. For one, we're running out of time. And for two, I'm more guilty of this one than anybody. But if you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. We'll flesh that out some other time. Let's move on. Uh, no, we can have political righteousness. If you really love God, you're going to vote for my, for my candidate. Man, I'm just telling you. Here lately, when people talk about the Christian candidate, I'm still waiting to see who that is. I think they're Christian principles that should guide how we vote, but my goodness. <laughs> oh, political righteousness. Last of all, tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. If two men are sexually attracted... I'm more righteous than you because I'm willing to embrace that. Might not be my thing, but I'm willing to say that's okay. And my tolerance makes me feel so good. I'm, let, let me just say this. Feeling tolerant can be one of the most lustful temptations you will ever face as a human being. You can let a lot of people die and go to hell because you wanted to feel tolerant. And instead of teaching and preaching the truth, I mean even in love, instead of confronting people whose lives are upside down, you had rather feel tolerant. And you know what you did? You prostituted those poor souls so you could feel like a good, well-accepting liberal. And you got so high off of it, you could barely touch the ground with your feet for a month. Found you a new church that embraced you and that idea and started giving me some what for on Facebook. Yep. Oh, well. The righteousness of God. I, I'm going to close. It might surprise you to know that Luther, and when I talk about Martin Luther, you know I'm talking about the Reformer, right? I have been in classes I've taught before and bring up Martin Luther and somebody before I could even save them. I hit him right in the face with a life jacket and couldn't help him. They came out with something about civil rights. I was like, and then, that, then see, I have to kind of, ooh. See, I've thrown my arm out trying to help those people. You kind of have to herd that back together because that's absolutely not who you're talking about. He was a great guy, but that's not Martin Luther. My grandfather was named Martin Luther Snellgrove, but not this one. Martin Luther, the reformer, it is said, hated this verse. Now you say, well, I thought he was a Christian, so how could he hate the Bible? You've got to remember, he started out a Catholic. Started out a diehard Catholic. And God began to transform his thinking and convict his heart, and there's so much we could say about all of that. But Boy, when Martin Luther began to struggle with what does it really mean to be a born-again Christian, when he realized it's not something that can be endowed upon me by the church, and he really got sideways about this paying for it, by that time, no kidding, the church had a jingle. A little jingle. I don't know if I've ever had a jingle. It had a little jingle when the coin and the offering plate rings, a soul from purgatory flings. Because you could actually buy insurance policies, not kidding one bit in the world, where they would pay for you, pray for you for a certain amount of time after you died. 
to get you back out of purgatory. Could you imagine going into a priest or wherever you go and say, I, I think I need to up my policy. <laughs> I don't think I got enough coverage. I've been pretty bad. Well, they had all of that. Martin Luther knew it was wrong. And boy, the church, the Catholic church hated him for it. But when he got to this verse, he had a hard time with it. And to start with, I'll tell you, the biggest reason was he was reading it in the Latin. Eustapha Cachre. Eustapha Cachre is the, it's an infin, uh, uh, the infinitive form of the word justice or to justify. Infinitive to justify in the Latin. Eustapha Cachre was the word that they would translate from the Latin to justify or to be made righteous. And that word gave Luther a hard time because he said there's no way that the church can make anybody righteous. And he really got upset because he began to think that God, if this righteousness of God that is revealed, if that's the righteousness that makes God righteous, so what? It has nothing to do with me whatsoever. I'm still lost. Matter of fact, Luther almost saw it as if it was God dangling his righteousness just out of reach of us. And you just won't ever, oh, oh, oh you can't quite reach it, can you? You got to realize the legalism and paganism combined that he grew up in, that toxic community of the Catholic Church. But then he considered the Greek word that we have here, dikasune. Dikasune is a word that actually means to be declared righteous. And I won't try to flesh it all out, but that's when Luther discovered a new Latin term. He said it's really eustia alium, alien righteousness. He said, I see it. He said, at that moment I realized that the righteousness that God talks about I have to have does not come from me. He said it's an alien righteousness. It comes from God. It's not my doing at all. And let me tell you what he said. This is so awesome. He said it was at that moment that I was, his words, born again. He said the gates of paradise swung wide open and I walked through. Wow. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He said, I finally figured it out. Man, that's my prayer for someone here today. And maybe you'd be here today and you'd, one day your testimony might just be. Went to a church one day, heard a lot of words I didn't understand, but I heard some that I did. Things that had haunted me all my life. Perhaps you've already discovered that you stink at salvation. I think that'd be the name of a great book. Why You Stink at Salvation. I, I think people would say, boy, I feel really picked up after this one. Let me get that. You stink at it, don't you? <laughs> There's some of you going, yeah. Some of you looking at your husband going, yeah, he does. It's all right. We stink at it. We get saved and we feel like God has given us all these great benefits and all these tools and we got our Bible and our, oh, we get our Sunday school perfect attendance pen. I wear that like a badge. Whip that thing out when the devil tempts you. Tell him, get behind me, Satan. Don't make me arrest you. We feel like we've had all of that good stuff and then we get out there and we just fail God miserably. I'm telling you, salvation was not one bit your doing. And living in a way that glorifies God, the next day will still not be one bit of your doing. Not one bit. 
one of these days when God comes to this earth and said enough is enough and he turns his wrath loose how are we going to survive that that's when we will be saved and instead of just being then declared righteous we will be glorified and we will know what it means to actually be righteous it's not our doing friends it's all God doing it we'll be here a few more weeks and I know some of this is kind of in the weeds but some of you need some weeds. You've, you've, sometimes in church we hear the sugar stick, easy to understand kind of stuff. I, I, I think it makes you stronger as a believer to go a little deeper with your faith. I think you doubt less when you realize that, boy, no matter how deep you go, no matter how many passages you look at, no matter how hard you study the context, the Word of God, the more I study it, the more true it becomes. I can stand on it better now than ever in my life. For others of you, maybe you're just here today and you're like, Pastor, I want so badly. I want so badly to know some peace and joy in my life. I'm the biggest failure in the world. And if anybody has proven the point that you cannot do it on your own power, I have. Well, let's bow together right now. And let's pray. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe if someone confronted you about how you feel about God like someone did Jim, maybe you'd have to have a different answer. I hope not. Maybe you're here today and you need Jesus to save you. You feel Him pulling and drawing and tugging at your heart and you got tons of questions and maybe misgivings or whatever. I'm just telling you, surrender. Surrender. And let Him save you. Maybe you're here today and I'd say this is a bigger group. You'd have to say, I stink at this, Pastor. I'm terrible at it. I say I do my best. I rarely do. I make excuses really, really well. I pretend to not have time when really it's just priorities. I talk about weaknesses, but yet I keep feeding that temptation. And I really do want to have a walk with God that brings joy and peace fulfillment but I've never really known what that was I've always felt like a big giant gargantuan fate of failure maybe right now you just like to say God I gotta quit trying to do this on my own I just got to come to you today. Just as I am. I had no plea the day I can't got saved. I don't have one now either. There was nothing good about me. The day you saved me, God, there's nothing good about me now. Help me to trust in you, Lord. Our Father, we thank you now for your word. What a what powerful truth you gave us today, God. I pray you just help us now as we sort through these things in our hearts and minds that they would find a resting place and they would bring courage and comfort to, Lord, those who are troubled of soul. Those who may not know you, I pray, Father, that they would come to know you. That this would be their Luther moment. I 
I pray, God, for that. I pray for those who are hurting among us, Miss Peggy and so many others, Lord, today. Their hearts are heavy. Please be near to them. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.